All right. We're going to kind of make our way back to our seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. Yeah, just a, just a quick reminder. This is the last month of sabbatical, you know? So uh, this is the last month of the Baileys being on sabbatical. And so we're, we're, you know, we're really excited for when they're going to come back. And, you know, when they come back, um, it's good, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but it's, you know, let's, let's ease them back in. Let's not just bombard them, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're really excited for when they're going to come back. And, um, and, and I just want to make a quick clarification. The, the paid pastoral position um, is in no way because the Baileys are on sabbatical. It has n this is not a coup. There is no connection there. Um, we, the Baileys, we were working with the Baileys trying to get this paid pastoral position together before they left, and we had to put everything on pause when they left, and we will resume the process when they come back. Um, it, Kevin has been the only paid pastoral person since the beginning of Anthem Cam, which is just, I mean, that's actually, that's kind of ab abnormal in, in the life of churches. Like, most churches have more than one paid pastoral person, so um, we're really excited just to get him some help, some paid help. So, anyway, yeah, so this week we're really excited to have Bert back with us. Uh, yes, yeah, Bert is a friend and part of the Anthem family, he's uh, the pastor up at Anthem Ventura, and we're really excited that he's back. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Bert up, just hand it off to him, and he's going to bring the word. Thanks, man. Yeah. Love you guys. Wait, do you want your notebook? It says all the secret elder notes in it for the church. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? I'm really excited to be back with you. I was back with you guys a few months ago, week two or three or something of Kev being out, so uh, I'm excited to see that you guys are still here, still checking along. This is awesome. Uh, but if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're new or newish to Anthem, we've been kind of on this year-long journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter from Paul uh, to a church in first century Corinth. And just as way of a bit of a framework, uh, this book, this letter is broken up into five mini essays, if you will. And so Paul is writing to this church because he is hearing, he's getting questions from them. He's hearing reports of what is going on there, and most of it isn't that good. And so he writes back kind of these five different essays or different responses to things that are happening in the church. And the first, does anyone remember what the first one was? Chapters one, two, three, what's going on there? Does anyone remember? You can shout it out if you do. Yeah, divisions in the church, particularly people lining up right around the, like their leader of choice, their leader of preference. I, excellent. That was the first one. What was the second one? Does anyone remember? Hey, all right, this is the really holy part of the room right here. Uh, this is about sexual immorality in the church, guys sleeping with their, their moms, uh, really like messed up relationships that are happening. And so Paul writes about singleness, about marriage, about divorce, about how to deal with sexual sin in the body and ultimately laying out a Christian sexual ethic. Uh, and then section three was about what? Anyone remember? Testing, testing some knowledge. What was that? Say that one more time. Lawsuits. 
Uh, it was technically, it was part of the, it's kind of a, that's an in-between section, so I'll give you half credit for that one. Oh, almost. There's a section in between. You guys are so close. You guys are getting the outer edges of what's going on here. I'll give you a hint. Anyone? Hey, there we go. Food sacrifice to idols. So ultimately how like the gospel intersects with culture. Uh, and, and most of the time uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with how they interact with like idol worship and food sacrifice to idols and life in the temple and everything like that. Well done. That was good. That wasn't too painful, was it? Which brings us to where Ben left us off, is we're in this spot where Paul is talking about what happens when we worship together, when the church gathers together. Now, as a side note, Paul devotes four entire chapters to what happens when Christians gather together. And so when anything is like repeated or given lots of time or space in Scripture, we know that it's what? Important. Paul doesn't want us to move past this, to glaze past this, that it is actually really vital that we gather regularly. Uh, And Paul gives us four chapters of instructions of what to do, what not to do, dissecting some of the things that are going wrong and some things that are going right. And so we just kind of wrapped up this spot where Paul is talking about how the Holy Spirit gives each and every single Christian to help build up the body. And where we're going next is to some of the things that you are probably really uncomfortable with, things like prophecy and tongues and what happens when the Holy Spirit is moving in a supernatural way, but wedged right in between those two chapters is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is, if you've ever heard this passage, it's probably been at a wedding, love is patient, love is kind, right? All of that. But it was never really meant to be taken out of the context of what's happening here. I think it actually loses some punch when we just remove it and use it as like a nice love poem, which, which is fine, you know, when we see it on an Instagram post or hand-stitched into a pillow or read at a wedding. Like, those are all fine things, but I think it loses a bit of its punch when we realize that 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 is actually the key to understanding what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Meaning we, we can't fully grasp what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. And we can't actually live out what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 without chapter 13, which is where we are today. So go ahead and, and keep there, put your, put your thumb there. Uh, but before we read, I just want to give us a little bit of, of a big idea for where we're heading. For what Paul is going to talk about in this chapter is that love, specifically Christian love, is the primary lens through which we should see and live in the community of the church. That love is the the foundation and the key for living and thriving in the community. And the truth is, and Paul knows this, that we are always motivated by love. Right? Augustine, one of the great heavyweights in church theology, said, my weight is love, Where I am carried, my love is carrying me. Knowing that love is the foundation and motivation for all we do, always without exception, everything we do is ultimately driven by what we love. Right? Before this is even a Christian principle, it is a human principle. It is a DNA of, of our humanness. It is built into who we are. To be human is to love. Now, the problem is that love is usually misdirected and misapplied doesn't mean you're not motivated by love, but it means you're motivated by love of other things or love of self, of love of other people. And the issue at hand here in 1 Corinthians is not that the Corinthians weren't loving. It's that they were loving all the wrong things. 
and loving all the wrong people. It's that their love was misdirected and it was warped. And what Paul seems to be getting at is it's affecting every part of their life. It's affecting everything. This is why so much of the Bible is not necessarily about what you think, but it's about what you love, about what you worship. Paul writes to a different church, the church in Philippi. He says, it's my prayer that you would love more and more, that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment coming afterwards, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's saying, I want your love to abound more and more so that you may approve what is excellent and you may be ready for the day of Christ. The writers of the Bible care incessantly about our hearts, our our posture, our inner life, and where our motivations are directed, what we love and what we worship. The reason Jesus talks about money than almost any other subject is because he knows it reveals where our heart is directed. He knows it reveals something about what we actually love and what we actually worship. It's the surest way to discover what you love is when I look at your bank account. I look at your credit card statement. I can tell what you love. You can tell me otherwise, but that is hard facts of what you love. Now, I'd even go a step further in our day. It's not just your money, but it's your money and your time. If I looked at your credit card statement and your calendar side by side, I'd have a pretty sure picture of what you love in life, where your affections are directed, where your worship is directed. Paul writes a second follow-up letter uh, to this church in Corinthians later, and he says, God loves a cheerful giver. And the point there is, is really interesting. There's almost this like assumed reality that God's people will be giving, but he loves a cheerful giver. That our posture, when we are giving, when our love is directed towards him, we give cheerfully. The point is where our hearts are at. And our issue, and we all come to this point, is not that we would start being motivated to live our lives from a place of love. We're already there. The issue at hand is will we live our lives motivated from a place of love for God and for his people and for this world? Which is what Paul is digging in at at the beginning of our text today. And the beginning of our text today actually starts just a little bit above 1 Corinthians 13. So just grab the line right before and Paul is going to connect what he's been talking about. So in chapter 12, he's been talking about how everyone has a part to play in the church. Everyone's been gifted by the Holy Spirit to help build up the church. And he says in chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire these higher gifts. You should do it. Earnestly desire to be gifted by the Spirit for the sake of building up the church. But I will show you a still more excellent way. And it's that I will show, he says, I'm showing you with my life a better way. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, can all work miracles or healing or administration or whatever, earnestly desire those gifts. Those are a good thing. Desire to be gifted by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the building up of the church. But the more excellent way, Paul says, is love. Christian love is the more excellent way. Paul starts his argument all the way back in 12, saying you can be gifted in these awesome ways, but he's going to tell us it means nothing if it's not coming from a place of love. 
if you're not actually motivated by love. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor from a few hundred years ago, says, all that virtue which is saving and distinguishing of true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. The point for Paul is love. From chapters 11 through 14, the point is love. If anyone asks you what those chapters are about, it's love. The point is love. And how we interact together is rooted and motivated by our love for God and one another. Love is the garden where all God's people and their gifts flourish. When rooted in selfless, sacrificial love, the gifts of the Spirit flow out of us as conduits of God's love for his people. Paul is saying the gifts of the Holy Spirit are important. Yes, they're an important part of the Christian life and the church is flourishing, but the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are not the point. The point is love. If the end goal of your prophetic gift is your prophetic gift, you've missed the point. The end goal of your prophetic gift, your teaching gift, your administrative gift, whatever it is, is love, building up the church. Paul insists on the necessity of love in the community. He insists it's not a byproduct and it's not a spiritual gift. For Paul, love is in a whole different category. Love is not a spiritual gift that you get sometimes or that only some people are gifted with. He insists it's actually a way in life that should inform and affect every part of each and every one of us. It's the primary issue here. The grace gifts are the secondary issue. So we talk about tongues. The primary issue is love, not tongues. In a couple weeks. As we talk about prophecy in a couple weeks, the primary issue is not prophecy, it's love. As we talk about what it means for, for the worship gathering to be orderly and for everyone to have a part to play, the point is not orderly worship, the point is love. Love is the prevailing lens for the church community to exist and flourish in. Love is the very nature of God, right? It's the motive for the cross, and it's now the ethos of all believers that would come follow Jesus. And in verse 1, two and three. He gives us this kind of back and forth. It's almost as if to drive the point a little harder to say, you can be gifted in all these really amazing ways, but if you have love, you are missing something. And he gives us three, like, what if scenarios. If I speak in tongues, verse one, of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if you speak in tongues, but you do it without love, you are useless and annoying. That's what he's saying. I, I'm a drummer, like Jerry, you guys have a few drummers here. I, I've drummed for, for a number of years, and like, I can tell you, if I were to just sit there and like hit a crash cymbal for five minutes in a row and nothing else, you guys would hate me. It would be the worst. You'd all leave with headaches. It would be super obnoxious. There's no musical tone to it. There's, there's nothing there except useless noise. That's what Paul's saying. If you, you're speaking in tongues, you're doing it without uh, love, not from a place of love or posture from love, you are useless and annoying, and everyone leaves with a headache. He says, verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If you have all these prophetic insights, but you're not motivated by love, you are nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I'm generous and sacrificial with my life, but I'm not doing it from a place of love, 
if I'm doing it from a place of like seeking attention or being applauded, I gain nothing. So often, Scripture talks about the, the gain of being generous and sacrificial with your life. But Paul adds this qualifier that if love isn't the motivation, what might be the lo- motivation? Pride or fame or attention? He said you gain nothing. None of the rewards of the kingdom of God are available to you if you're not generous and sacrificial from a place of love. The writer John in 1 John 4 sums it up like this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love can't be measured by actions alone. Jesus, Paul, and John all insist that our motivations have to be under the spotlight. But the assumption is, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that if we are doing these things without love, we gain nothing. We are nothing. We're useless. We're annoying. But sort of you flip that on, your, on the head, uh, totally upside down. If we do those things from a place of, of love, from authentic love for God and for his people, that means there is something to be gained there. That there is actually forward motion that can happen. If I speak in tongues and I'm doing it from a posture and a place of love, love for God, love for his people, then there's this, this beautiful communion and worship with God available to me. If, I, if I'm flexing these prophetic muscles that the Holy Spirit was giving me from this place and, and posture of love, we can be useful in building up the church. If we're generous and and sacrificial and we're doing it from a place of being loved, not being applauded or thanked or not for pride or, or to say you're better than someone else, but truly from a place of love for God and for his people, Jesus and Paul say there are kingdom rewards for that kind of living. That you actually store up treasures in heaven. But without love, we are nothing. And he goes on in, in verse 4. This is the part that's really well known to all of us right here. But don't let familiarity breed contempt here. Take in each and every phrase. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There are two primary things that that jump out to me that I think we as a church need to wrestle with when we take this ultra-familiar passage that 50% of you have on a poster somewhere in your house, and we actually like What if it wasn't a nice thing to put on the wall, but it was actually like a litmus test for are we actually living by the power of the Spirit? Are we actually apprenticing Jesus in our life and letting him make us more like him? There are two primary things that that jump out. The first is Paul's talking about a specific kind of love, a love that requires death. That this kind of love is death. He's talking about a specific kind of love. And 
In the English language, we have one, maybe two words for, for all of what encompasses love. And, and, and in so many other languages, including Greek, which is what Paul was writing in, there's actually a few different words to unpack love. And there's a, you know, a version of love for like a romantic love between a husband and a wife and sort of this romance love. It's eros. And there's another love that's like a brotherly or sisterly friendship love, philio. And there's a few other different ones here, but the one Paul is using all over this chapter and in most of his letter to the Corinthians is this word agape, uh, and it's the highest form of love. It's this generous, sacrificial, it's God's love towards you and I is how we should be loving each other. The highest form of love, and it's a form of love that costs you something. This kind of love is all about self-denial, or what Jesus says is taking up your cross, dying daily. And to truly know and experience and to walk out biblical love doesn't require happiness or affinity or friendship. It requires selflessness. To truly love, you have to die to yourself. That, for Paul, is the foundational framework for Christian love. Are you ready to die for your brothers and your sisters? Look around the room to your left and your right. Are you ready to die for them? And like, we can idealize a a really heroic death. I'm talking like, are you willing to sacrifice comfort in your life for the person sitting to your left or your right? Are you willing to sacrifice margin in your schedule for the person to the left or to the right? To the stranger who walks in who doesn't know anybody. It's been said that the first 10 minutes of church is the loneliest time period in someone's week. Are you willing to sacrifice hanging out with your friends to welcome in the outsider? Christian love is a selfless love. And Paul here in these first, or in these three couple of verses right here, gives like 15 descriptors of what is going on here, of what kind of love this is. And what struck me is how virtually all of them involve dying to yourself. Love is patient. It's, it's long-suffering. It's able to wait for someone without complaining. Imagine the story of God with his people in the Old Testament. Long-suffering Yahweh with the Israelites always providing a way of grace, always providing a way of redemption. Mess up after mess up after mess up, he still says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. This kind of love puts up with other people's weaknesses, their weird idiosyncrasies, and it reminds us of God's love for us, that God puts up with you, and you're a mess. And that's how we're supposed to be treating each other. Love is kind. It does not envy, right? Remember the context of all these grace gifts that Paul's talking about given by the Holy Spirit is, is comparison. People were saying if you, you know, were like a, a teacher, if you were, had these gifts of prophetic powers, if you spoke in tongues, like those were the highest gifts. And if, man, if you were gifted to just serve or like had this mercy or compassion gift, you were down at the bottom of the totem pole. Paul says love doesn't envy If you're not gifted like someone else, it doesn't say, I wish I was gifted like that person. It says, thank you, God, for gifting me how I am gifted. How can I serve you and the church? It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. 
and say, man, I'm, I'm really something because I've made it here. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Which, by the way, just an interesting, like, literary tidbit. That, that word rude is the same word in the original language as Paul talked about in, in chapter 12 being unpresentable. The parts of the body that are unpresentable. Like, socially unacceptable. It doesn't cause disgrace, embarrassment, shame. It doesn't insist on its own way, you A-type personality people. It doesn't insist on your own ways, you Enneagram type 1, 3, and 8. Like, it doesn't insist on its own way. If you're, like, wired a certain way, you're just wired to see the context of everybody else's poor decisions, and you're like, they should have listened to me. If the first thing, when someone close to you screws up, says, I told you so, or you should have done it like this, love does not insist on its own way. It's not resentful. Holding on to a grudge or is bitter. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Man, how often do we rejoice when wrong is done? Not like a, not like a murder, you know, but like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. You get cut off on the road and you're just like hoping that person gets cut off again by somebody else. Like, how often do we rejoice when wrong is done and not rejoice with the truth? And verse 7 kind of has this couplet where the outer phrases and the inner phrases are, are basically the same. He says, love bears all things, and at the end endures all those things. Kind of the same thing. It, it holds steady with people. Right? God's abounding, steadfast love. We're supposed to mimic it. It believes and hopes all things. You don't lose hope and faith in God or in his people. And all of these include some version of dying to yourself for the sake of somebody else, of laying down maybe what is rightfully yours, laying down your rights for the sake of someone else, for their good for God's glory, and for your ultimate joy to live this way. But this kind of love is not inevitable. If you just like, show up at Sundays long enough and are in a community group, it won't just happen to you. Love takes practice. The writer and philosopher James K.A. Smith says, discipleship we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is this, this like reforming or rehabituation of what you love. Discipleship to Jesus is this long process of saying, Jesus, I love you more than my money. Jesus, I love you more than raising a perfect put together family. Jesus, I love you more than being successful in my career. I love you more than having my protected day off where no one bothers me. Discipleship is this long process of curating our heart, our loves, about what we are attentive to and intentional about. And by attending to our loves, we can walk in this more excellent way. 
as we partner with the Holy Spirit in our change, you actually can grow in your love. It's not a static thing. Like if you're just a grumpy person, you're not grumpy forever. You don't have to be. It's not inevitable, but you don't have to be. You can actually grow in showing patience and kindness and forbearance, not envying, not boasting. The writer John, again, in 1 John 4, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And what is fascinating about that verse right there is the way John uses that phrase, let us love. I'm going to nerd out on you for about 30 seconds here. It's, it's a version of agape. It's not the same as agape. It's a version of agape. And it's this version that is in the present subjunctive active tense, meaning it's something that is ongoing. It's something that you participate in, and that part subjunctive means it's something that's not fully here yet, meaning it's something that you do every day even though you suck at it. It's something you do every day even though you need to grow in it. It is a way of life. And so some translations say, let us practice loving one another, which is a really helpful way of looking at that verse. You practice it something because you're not good at it yet. I've been a musician for a number of years. I'm much better now than I was 15 years ago. Sherry and I, my wife and I just got a membership to a gym. I know you can tell. Um, and we just started, and I'm awful at it. I'm awful at running. I'm awful at doing the elliptical. I'm awful at, like, lifting any kind of weights. I'm not motivated. I'm garbage at it. But I'm better at it this week than I was last week because I'm practicing. I'm devoting time to it. I'm growing in it. Let us practice loving one another because we are really bad at loving one another, and we're really bad at loving God. And we're really bad at loving one another and loving God because we're really good at loving ourselves. John Calvin, one of these theologians and reformers a few hundred years ago, said, the heart is an idol factory. We are always creating and looking for something to love and to worship. And we are realigning our hearts back to its truest fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that takes practice and intentionality. It won't just happen to you. Too many things are vying for your attention for it to just happen to you. So love is death and love takes practice. But for Paul, love is the grid through which we view success in the kingdom of God. So it seems like Paul is doing here is not giving an exhaustive definition of what love is. It's, it's these and no more. What he's doing is he's actually applying Christian agape love to the lives of the Corinthians. Because as we trace through this list in 4, 5, 6, and 7, we actually find that it's combating certain things and certain issues that have been happening in the church. They were boasting in men. They were puffed up in their wrongdoing. They were unwilling to suffer long and bear all things. And so they were taking each other to court. They were insisting on their own way and eating meat that caused other people to stumble. They were acting rude or in unseemly ways by not wearing the customary head coverings. They were insisting on their own way as they ate their own meal at the Lord's Supper without regard to other people. And they were jealous and envious and puffed up and arrogant and boastful as they compared their spiritual gifts and thought that some were needed and some were not. 
For Paul, this is not just a Webster's definition. This is his application to the church that is messed up. He's laying down a grid over the Corinthian church where he sees all these behaviors and ways and attitudes and said, this is not right. Paul's not just highlighting the importance of love, but saying it has to be at the forefront. The foundation, the thing we celebrate the most, the motivation of all of life in and out of the church. And it has form and its function. It's not abstract. It has a specific form and function to it. And what he's going to tell us, it's that which lasts into eternity. It's something we can practice now and get a glimpse of eternal life together. And he's saying, pursue something different. Pursue the better way, the more excellent way. Why? Because everything else fades away. Verse 8 says, love never ends. Which we always add on to verses 4, 5, and 6. But it's actually the beginning of this new thought he has in verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. He says, we only know a portion of the truth. And what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, all those things pass away. All those incomplete ways will be canceled. And this is something that is so easy for the church. is to get so fixated on what's here and now and forget about the eternal things to get really wrapped up and like, should we or should we not speak in tongues in the church? And Paul's like, what are you talking about? Like those things are going to pass away eventually. Don't worry about them. Worry about loving one another really well. Worry about loving God really well in a way that changes every part of your life. Live with this eternal perspective. For Paul, the end of all things is in view And the church should be living for eternity, not exclusively for the here and the now. And for Paul, love is what authenticates a believer. It's what truly displays if you are, in his language, spiritual people or people animated by the Spirit. And unlike these grace gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body, those things expire, love does not. He says one day they won't be needed because we'll be in the presence of God in a way that doesn't need those same gifts. But love is what continues with us on into eternity. So let's practice that and get that right because we're taking that with us. It says in verse 9, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That perfect comes as Jesus' return. When he comes back, For that second time, when he returns, all of the imperfect passes away. All of the partial passes away. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then on the day the perfect comes face to face. Now we know in part, then Jesus comes, we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When the perfect comes, I'm no longer going to see dimly. I'm going to get the whole picture. We're going to be with Jesus face to face. This has not happened yet. 
So in the meantime, keep exercising these gifts of the Holy Spirit because we need them here and now for the building up of the church. Keep loving each other well to practice for when Jesus comes back and we see him face to face. Until Jesus returns, we need those grace gifts. But Paul says we need to use them properly. The proper use of these grace gifts by the Holy Spirit is use informed by love. Paul says everything, doing everything that we do in the church is always in the context and the motivation for love. And he says in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. For right now, until that completeness, we have these three things that lead us towards that day. Faith, trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly in him, and love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love, which is not a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a way of life for anyone that would come and follow Jesus. So there are a few things this chapter does for us, three in particular, that it should shape in our lives. And the first is that it it shows our need for grace. Because as we look at the Corinthian church, we're like, yeah, guys, you really messed this up. What's going on here? But I bet as we were working through verses four, five, six, and seven, you were like, whoops. How many of these did you screw up before you got in the room this morning? If you have to get kids out of the house to get to church, you messed up all of them already. Guarantee you. For sure. We need grace to actually do this. We need Jesus' grace to do this because no church is exempt from the stuff Paul has been digging in at. Right? No church is exempt from jealousy or boasting or arrogance or churches prizing the dramatic but worthless spiritual displays, the, the shameful and indecent worship and the other countless sins of this church. No church is exempt from those temptations. So we need God's transforming grace so that we can follow what Paul says, the more excellent way as we are empowered by his spirit. The second thing it does for us is it calls for a response of love, right? If we've received the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right, which we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, we believe every single person has received something from the Holy Spirit for the good of the church, uh, we have to use them alongside the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Wherever the gospel goes, it bears the fruit of faith, hope, and love, Of these, Paul says, love is the greatest. Because unlike hope, which will be fulfilled at Christ's return, and faith, which becomes sight when he comes back, love will never pass away. For all of eternity, love will be the appropriate response of God's movement towards us. If we have received Christ, we have, Paul says, the mind of Christ and are becoming like him. Not only that, and not only for ourselves, but loving one another really well, loving one another like this shows the world who Jesus is. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, that kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. As we are loving each other in a way that tells the world we follow Jesus, the world will see something different than what they see in their neighbors, in their coworkers, their workplaces. They'll see something different. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we loving one another in a way that points people to Jesus? Is our love, is your love for the person to your left or your right any sort of compelling? Or is it just like the love people have for each other here out in the world? Is it any sort of different? Is it directing people towards Jesus? Is it compelling or is it repelling people? Want a quick litmus test? Go back to verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. How are we doing with these things? I'm willing to bet if we are growing in those things, that's the kind of love Jesus was talking about. That's going to show the world that we are his disciples. Maybe a next step for you is to ask the Holy Spirit for a bit of self-introspection, self-examination. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you just need the Holy Spirit to help you grow and say, where, where am I not living up to this kind of love? Where's my life not reflecting the kind of love that's going to show the world we are Jesus' disciples and ask the Holy Spirit to help us grow? 15 things. You got 15 to-do items later today. Write them all down. Man, how's my patience today? Okay, D minus. How's my kindness? And start going through the list and say, Holy Spirit, where do you want me to grow today, this week? Maybe pick one thing, honestly. Get really practical. How can I grow in kindness for the next seven days? Holy Spirit, help me. Really practical. Lastly, the last thing this chapter does for us is it drives us to the gospel. It motivates us and enables us to actually respond in love by deepening our appreciation and gratitude for God's love for us. We're not manufacturing something that wasn't already given to us. We are simply reflecting or responding to what God has already done for you and for me. Again, in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. As we seek to grow in love, we must always keep God's love for us in view. It will be impossible to love your kids this way if we lose sight of God's love for us. He has moved towards us already, enabling us to move closer to himself and to our brothers and sisters. We need his grace to love like this. It should call for a response there should be a, a moment where you pair this up with your life and say, okay, where do I need to grow Holy Spirit? But you can't do any of that if you take your eyes off God's love for you, that you are his son or his daughter, and he loves you. He's loved you with the sacrificial, generous kind of love that has saved you. And now he says, Go show other people that kind of love as well. We're going to respond uh, to God's word, and we respond in a couple of different ways. And I'll mention them in just a moment. But to tee up how we respond today, go ahead and stand. And I want to read a passage of scripture over you. It's what feels like a parallel and a partner to 1 Corinthians 13 is 1 John 4. Kind of the back two-thirds are like... 
the Apostle John's version of what Paul has been getting at here. And so as, uh, as I read, feel free to, you can read along on, on the screens if you want. You can also close your eyes. Um, you can put out your hands in front of you, this posture of just receiving from the Lord and receiving his truth, his way of doing things. Um, you can close your eyes and imagine what this kind of love might look like. You can ask the Holy Spirit to help like shine a light, some dark places in your life and, and see where you need to grow and to become more like him. But picking up in 1 John 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or substitution for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have to come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Father, help us love like this. Thank you for your love, your movement towards us. As we respond to this kind of love, would it be a response of love ourselves? Help us to be more like you. Come Holy Spirit. Change us from the inside out to be the kinds of people who love others the way you loved us. Amen. We're going to respond by singing together. Um, and as we sing the next few songs, there are a few other ways we can respond. Alex mentioned one of them is we have a give box in the back. You can give in person or online as a response to God's generosity towards you. Uh, also, on either side of the room, we have communion available. Uh, at any point during the singing, you can go and receive communion. And my encouragement to you is, is don't go alone. There's not one picture of communion in the Bible that's solitary. So go with your spouse, your row, with your community group, a stranger. Go and pray and thank God for the sacrifice to make this kind of love possible. 
uh, and as well over on the carpets. If you'd like prayer for any reason, there'll be some people who'd love to pray for you today. But let's go ahead and sing um, of God's generous and amazing love towards us.